Well, after um, a bit of a messy start, but that's okay because um, technology's uh, not my strong suit. As I said, I'm chairman of a technology startup. That's all. It stops there. <laughs> anyway, welcome to everyone, um, and welcome to you, Matt. Thank you, um, Matt. Uh, is uh, we've known Annabella a long while. Mm. Your wife, uh, known you a shorter time, um, but. Um, we got very interested in your book, Disrupting Mercy, which we'll, you've written recently. We'll say more about that later. Um, but just to um, explain just very quickly uh, the positioning of this particular talk, we're about to start a series in Gospel Conversations on uh, cross and creation, um, which is a, a general title under, underneath which sits uh, an, uh, an analysis and probably critique of penal substitution, a traditional Christian model of redemption based upon law and order and judicial mm. concepts of the gospel. Um, now, we'll be examining that over the next three months, but um, your book is not directly on this, although it's indirectly on it, and that's interested us. And the reason it interested me in particular, um, is that it's um, got a very strong thematic connection to what we're going to talk about because it really shows how whatever worldview you've got, um, once you move into a more sophisticated engagement with the human system, your worldview will get challenged, and that's what interests mm, me. Mm. So I'm going to get you to say a bit more about your background um, to. to uh, uh, introduce yourself in a moment, but I just wanted to mention one other uh, thematic connection to stuff that really interests us. Um, th throughout the history of gospel conversations, we've really been pursuing the idea of Jesus being Lord of the cosmos, you know, not just a religious box and church, but the cosmos. Um, and so that's loosely, you know, the, move the movement is called faith at work, although we take a bigger view of it than just faith at work, but we expect to find God everywhere. Mm. And um, quite rightly, I think a lot of people would say, yeah, but how does that work in practice? I mean, what would it be like to take the gospel into, um, a, you know, a system that's on the earth, but is not church? I think you're, you've done that, and, and you and Annabella have done it in a very entrepreneurial way, as people without structural connections, which is also very interesting just from the point of view of innovation and entrepreneurship. Mm. So, a little bit about yourself, Matt, to, to yeah. who you are and, and how, how, what led you to this place. Yeah, well, you know, biography is always a bit tricky because um, I'm now 60-something, 60, 60? Young, just young. Yeah, and, and so there's a lot of history. I was born when I was very young. Uh, and then a lot's happened since then, and now I'm not so young. Uh, look, most of my career was in um, information technology in one form or another. I worked with software companies, I've worked in academia, and I've worked with not-for-profits doing a whole variety of things with computing and technology. One of my passions has been looking at the connection of faith and technology, but that's not for today's uh, discussion. Um, I uh, am also interested in, in peacemaking. So the IT career is really sideline for me because what I'm passionate about more than anything else is building community and thinking about how technology serves our human being uh, and 
how we can coexist together in some sort of peace and shalom. Uh, so that took me to, uh, to South Africa during the 90s. Uh, I arrived just when Mandela was released from prison and voted in the 1994 elections. Um, I was there, I had a job at a university lecturing computer science, but the reason for being there was to get involved with a group called African Enterprise and the cross-cultural peacemaking reconciliation work that they were doing through those, those tricky years at the end of apartheid. I stayed there for most of the 90s. Um, and then I came back to Australia and did a variety of different sorts of work. Uh, um, Annabella and I, we, you'll find out more about Annabella because she's a co-author of the book. Um, we met through eHarmony. We're a modern online couple about seven years ago. We were married five years ago. And um, at that time I was working with uh, Compassion, the, the Christian child poverty reduction uh, organization. And I was doing data analysis and strategic um, information work for them. Um, and through them I got to understand the ongoing problem of human trafficking and particularly how that affected the children who were under Compassion's care, the exploitation and abuses that they were at risk of. And so I tried to find some way within Compassion to get more involved with that and it could, we couldn't find a, a niche. So then I started looking more broadly and looking at other organisations and other job opportunities. But in the end decided that um, uh, the better alternative would be to start something new. And we don't want to set up a new organisation that's in competition with other human trafficking organisations, but we wanted to do some research that was a bit left of field and we didn't want to align ourselves with uh, existing strategies and theological commitments, but to be able to stand back a bit and ask some tricky questions and think about why the trajectory of human trafficking has been going in the worst direction rather than the better direction for 20 years. And uh, what might be done in the next 20 years that could be better than just repeating what we've done that hasn't worked. So, so just hmm. to, to pause there, you've hmm. said something very important. I think a lot of people, um, so number one, you're dealing with what I would call a big system. Hmm. It's, a, it's called a human trafficking system. It's a dark system, but it's an interconnected system. Um, number two, and a lot of these systems you know, run the world, but number two, nobody owns them. Whereas if I work inside an organisation, you know, there's a contained system like the hiring system or something, I can do something with it. But once you get into big social systems, hmm. it's, it's a messy, not easy to control. Yeah, yeah. No, so that's, yeah. that's that thing. Yeah. But then, then the next point, I think, which is a lot of people find themselves in the situation is being frustrated by that system. You know, mm. I'm in it, I'm an actor in it, I can't change it, uh, where are the levers? And it takes, um, I mean, I've, when I, particularly when I ran Second Row, we were pretty often involved in that kind of world. And so I'm, I'm very used to it. It takes often people like yourselves, individuals with a passion who can somehow or other take a more holistic view of the system, right? Um, which is firstly an intellectual task, but then becomes a social task. So mm. Mm. Uh, I think you're doing something wonderful. Yeah, and no, I think that's very important. And we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk later about um, how there's very little systems theory in the anti-trafficking movement. It, yeah. It's not well thought through in terms of, of uh, a system. Well, yeah. well, to that end, I think I'd like to say now, straight away, um, get you to talk about this, but the one thing that a view you and I would share is that every system has got underneath it worldviews, mm. and the worldviews will influence mm -hmm. what you do in that system. Now, 
what you've alluded to, and I think a lot of people in, in seeing systems not working would identify with this. I mean, you, let's, the system you're in is loosely called human trafficking. Um, you know a lot about it, you've worked a lot about it. Uh, uh, I'd like you to give, before we go into what you saw as wrong with it, mm. could you just frame up a little bit for people who don't know what's going on, what, 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 is, what is this human trafficking, modern slavery, how big is the system, yeah, yeah. is measuring it, um, what's it, how's it defined, all those things. Yeah, and, and look, that's, that's immediately tricky and controversial because uh, there is no clear, well, there's competing definitions of, what, of the space. Some people like talking about human trafficking, others like talking about modern slavery, and there's some internal dissent about which is the most appropriate term, and neither, I think, are fully appropriate, so we have to go with some mixture of the two. Um, it's, there's no place in the world where it's legal to own another person in the way that you could have 200 years ago. Uh, and so whatever slavery is, it is now more hidden. Uh, and it's more to do with the level of freedom that you take away from people. It's the type of abuse and exploitation and coercion that prevents people being able to make their own choices. And so how you do you measure that? that that's really tricky because it's hard to put boundaries around, around abuse, exploitation and coercion. Uh, the best estimates that we have come from a group in Perth called the Walk Free Foundation that's funded by Andrew Forrest. And uh, they've done a series of measurements globally of the prevalence of modern slavery, that's the term they use. And their most recent estimate is 50 million, 50 million slaves right now in the world. And by slave, it includes things like uh, about a, th a third, a quarter of those are forced marriages. They're so in cultures, but including in Australia, uh, cultures where young girls are, are forced into marriage that they have no choice of. And then often they don't get any educational opportunities. They're, they're um, secluded at home, etc. So their choices are taken away. It includes... Uh, I presume the Taliban have lifted the numbers significantly. Well, quite possibly. Then that's also hard to measure. It includes state-sponsored uh, slavery, uh, like in North Korea, where a lot of people are just told what to do by the government and have no choice. It uh, could also include, although I think that figure of 50 million doesn't include it for probably political reasons, um, people in jails, particularly in the US, who are forced to work for no wages in uh, unsafe, out of award conditions. Um, it includes people who are forced into some form of uh, prostitution. And there's a lot of debate within the, these circles about whether there is any legitimate form of prostitution, <coughs> whether all prostitution is exploitative or whether there's a valid role for sex work. That's, um, that's under dispute. Um, it also includes a lot of labour exploitation where people are tricked into a job, perhaps given a loan so that they can have the tools to do the job and then aren't paid enough to pay back the loan. Uh, and that loan often builds up over time. It's a particular problem with indentured labour in India. Uh, and that loan gets passed on to the next generation. And if you try to evade repaying the loan, then you're rounded up, beaten, and forced back into the rock quarry or the, the coffee plantation or the sweatshop making cheap clothes that we all uh, require because of our consumption habits. So it's a noble aspiration to want to interrupt this, disrupt it, do something with it, but mm. it's a big messy space. And, it's very messy. Uh, and and uh, yeah, thanks for that, um, uh, I think, pretty articulate um, explanation of the boundary of the system, or pot potential boundaries. But what then, 
you, I mean, a lot of well-meaning people and well-meaning not-for-profits around the world, mm. including Christian ones, we won't mention any by name, people might guess, are trying to intervene. Yes. And loosely speaking, you're like anyone looking at a big system that's broken, you're thinking, how do we fix this? I would say you're one of these people who doesn't want a Band-Aid approach or, or approach that's just dealing with symptoms, but mm. going more to root causes and and doing something that will not just intervene on case-by-case -case, uh, bases, but actually interrupting the logic of the system. So can you talk a mm. little bit about mm. the frustrations mm. of the traditional approaches that in largely people are taking? Yeah, as you say, there, there are a lot of people trying to work on this. There are literally thousands of organisations in the anti-slavery movement, hundreds of millions of dollars being spent each year trying to do something about this. Um, the, the history from the last couple of hundred years is that uh, a lot of work has been done to uh, set up legal structures to change public policy and international and, and state-based um, laws to, to at least identify the criminal activity that's, that's happening. Uh, and then to strengthen law enforcement to try to imp impose those laws. Uh, so that's, that's a position that's still taken by a lot of organisations, particularly the government-based ones. Um, but a lot of the not-for-profits are either engaged in rescuing the victims and trying to rehabilitate victims, or in terms of um, the traffickers, the, the primary intervention is to try to arrest them, convict them, and put them in jail, punish them somehow, take them out of the system. More recently, like in the last five, 10 years, an increasing amount of work is being done in uh, that's a little bit more systemic, which is looking at supply chains. So it's forcing companies in Australia, the recent legislation, both uh, federally and in New South Wales, the legislation requires large organisations to make an annual report in which they speak about their own um, auditing of possible exploitation within their organisation and within their suppliers. And the idea there is that should ripple out uh, so that if um, people give supply contracts to people who have said, we can guarantee that no one's exploited in, in our com company, well then the next year that gets pushed out for the suppliers. They've got to ask their suppliers, can they guarantee that they're not exploiting anyone so that that supplier can say to the, the major company in Australia, that it's compliant. And, but the trouble with doing auditing is, is fairly obvious. It's easy to um, corrupt that, that type of system. Uh, so they, they, they've been the existing sort of strategies. So the, but the main strategy that you've talked about at not-for-profits is what I would call a law and order mm -hmm. response, a, a sort of a forensic response. Mm -hmm. Um, and the question, and what you're saying, let, 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 let me, I don't think I'm putting words in you have to say, holistically, this does not appear to be working. No, no, the, it's, it's because yes, it's very hard to estimate the prevalence. It's hard to know whether the situation is getting worse or better, but it, it tends to, it seems as though from the measurements that it's getting worse rather than better. It's certainly not getting better. Yeah, so, mm. so that leads us to the situation where we can now move more directly into, let's call it the world view mm. underlying the interventions. And um, uh, I, I shared with you my experience, uh, not quite as, uh, well, probably as big a system, but uh, years ago I was uh, spent a lot of time consulting with uh, the tax office. And the tax office uh, in Australia back in the late, 
the 80s and early 90s was led by a amazing man. He was amazing because he worked in the, in the in the tax office all his life, got to the top and smashed it. You know, very few people have the courage to do that. Mm. But essentially, they had their version of your law and order system. In other words, it's one for one. Um, I've got to chase everybody up who doesn't pay. It's a moral sin not to pay. Um, and uh, by which, what that means is if I owe a dollar, I'll treat you the same as if I, if you owe a billion dollars. It's right. just the same. You, you know, it's a sin. Um, and what this led to, and, and underneath it all was not trusting the taxpayer, mm. not trusting them, uh, viewing them as villains. So what that meant was the tax office back in those days had to do all the assessment for every single person in Australia because we don't trust you because you're mm. you know, a sinner or something. Mm. Mm. Um, and that was, t that was just as a s unsustainable. The tax office, people, they didn't confess it, but their computer systems were within months of grinding to a halt. They just couldn't take the burden. Uh, they didn't have enough employees to do it. And he totally flipped the system to what was self-assessment. Now, um, you can do that, but underneath it all, they had to have a different view of a human being. Mm -hmm. um, mm. My particular client, as I think I mentioned to you, was a lovely Jewish atheist who, yep. <laughs> who was the brightest guy in the public service in many ways. Um, and he had a famously at a workshop uh, of the top 20 people in the tax office said, because uh, they there's a lot of uh, Catholics in the system. He said, he said, we won't get anywhere until we break the Catholic hierarchy and worldview <laughs> behind the tax system, which is, it's a, it's a moral sin. Yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah. that was overstating it. But nonetheless, he was, they were completely right. And they had to build a new worldview of people. They actually uh, mm. got some academics called the Braithwaite's to invent a new to do research on how do human beings respond to law and order systems and um, yep. without going too far into it, essentially the Braithwaite's came back and said, if, if you basically treat everybody as if they're basically good until they're proven otherwise, that's how the system will work. So as a result of that worldview change, they changed mm, almost mm. everything they did. So mm. um, that's that, yeah. but I think what you've done in this book uh, which I'll get you to, to talk about now, is um, you've said that underneath the, tr the traditional approaches to the slavery system, there's a, there is, a, unfortunately, I think you did say, some. it's the Christian not-for-profits who are most resistant, probably, to a systemic view of things. And there, there is a particular view of justice that seems to be feeding it. Do you want to say a bit mm. more about the worldview underneath it that led you to this yeah, yeah, yeah. The worldview is really important, and uh, I've written about it elsewhere rather than in this book in, in more detail. There's an article of mine in the Journal for Christianity and Sociology, uh, in which I talk about how your theological presuppositions both enable and constrain how you might intervene in a problem space like human trafficking. Uh, and so, it's not just your general worldview. All all Christians and Jews and is and Muslims as well would start with the assumption that all humanity is made in the image of God and that therefore the uh, human trafficking and modern slavery is wrong because it abuses the image of God in, in the victim. Uh, and, and so that's an important worldview assumption which gets you off the ground and motivates some sort of compassion and engagement in trying to stop human trafficking. But it doesn't get you very far in terms of how do you act in the space, what sort of uh, actions, interventions might you, might you take. And so if you have a theology that's centred on personal sin, 
that personal sin is a problem in the world and everyone needs to repent and come to Jesus, then your approach to slavery will uh, follow, follow in that mould, that, that the victim and the trafficker both need to repent and become Christians and then the problem will go away. Um, if your theology is more about structural sin, if you're into social justice and that life on earth here uh, needs to be fixed up, not just escaped from uh, with our, our ticket to heaven, if, if there's some commitment to doing something here and now in the name of God to improve the, the state of the world and to enable human flourishing, then that, there's a whole pile of different interventions that you would take. You would be much more interested in challenging the systems, uh, in thinking about how capitalism forces people to be exploited, um, how systems of um, sexual repression drive people into pathological sexual behaviours which end up abusing someone for their sexual gratification. Uh, so yeah, your theological assumptions both enable what you're going to do and it mobilises people in your community to become involved with those actions, but it also constrains the choices that, that you have. And I think we haven't looked widely enough amongst Christian theology to see what other theological perspectives might inform our actions. Um, I'm quite a fan of René Girard, and so I'm interested in how mimetic theory, uh, which explains the evolution of violence within our, our cultures, how that might then apply to the violence that's inherent in human trafficking. What's mimetic theory? Um, mimetic theory, in brief, uh, is a, a type of anthropology that says a core um, uh, mechanism underlying our behaviours is that we copy others. Mm -hmm. um, we imitate from a child, we imitate others. And most importantly, we learn what we want by looking at what other people want. Our desires are copied from other people. And if I copy your desire, if there's a toy that uh, I've never even seen, but, but you seem to want and start playing with, well, me as a three-year-old are going to want that toy. And uh, if there's a woman that you find attractive and I regard you highly, well, then I'm going to start wishing that I had that woman. And that puts us in conflict with each other. The fact that, that we imitate each other's desire creates um, competition. And that competition then leads to rivalry and um, uh, an accumulation of conflict, which somehow has to be dealt with. And the typical way that human society have dealt with it is that rather than allow the whole society to explode and just self-immolate, to destroy itself because of the, the conflict of crisis, conflict of the, the crisis of conflict, we pick someone to blame. It was their fault. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was that person who didn't honour the gods properly. And so we choose someone and it's normally someone who's different. It might be that they've got a dodgy eye or a missing limb, or it might be that they're the king. They might be the, the rich person, or it might be that they have some different beliefs from us, but we find some scapegoat for arbitrary reasons and we put the blame on them. Oh. So that, that's, that's mimetic theory. And a lot of that process happens in human trafficking. And we, uh, a lot of it um, gets cast onto the victims and we take particular 
have particular sympathy for the victims because we've, we now realise that most victims are innocent, whereas in ancient history, victims were normally getting their due dessert from the anger of the gods. We now realise that, that innocent victims need protecting. But in, instead of just blaming the victims, we now find someone else to blame. And the trafficker is a very easy, easy target. target. Yeah. They're, they're obviously the evil person. Uh, they're the little Hitlers. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so we have to punish them. We have to do something to cast out all our social animosity onto, onto them and put them in jail. Oh, and then we'll feel a bit better and, and the problem will go away. But, Except it doesn't. But that is showing the nuances of what is your worldview of mm. a human being and what is your worldview of sin and that if you've got this personal view of sin then you, you, you find the, the one who's sinning most, the perpetrator, and you bring punishment upon them. Yes. And a judicial model of God would actually have God behind that. Yeah, um, that, justifies that your, justifies your retribution. Whereas what you mm. talked about in the mimetic theory was a more nuanced view of human bad behaviour more to do with desires that get corrupted mm. and interrupted with. Uh, mm. Gregory of Nyssa would be very, very useful uh, <laughs> uh, if only he were alive today, because that's exactly <laughs> his view of uh, uh, um, the fall. It, it, the, mm. uh, his view put simply of human nature in complete contrast to St. Augustine, who thought our wills were corrupted. Gregory thought our wills, we all want the good. Mm. Trouble is that we, we get deceived as mm. to what will be giving me the good? Um, yeah. And, yeah. Um, now, if, if can, can I just add one other theological sort of perspective in there without going into a lot of detail? Another thing that is richly insightful is um, a restorative view of justice, which has strong Christian foundations. So, if justice is about restoring a state of goodness, about restoring shalom, uh, then human trafficking, is its essence is that it violates shalom. And so you could then have a whole different sort of engagement with human trafficking about, well, how do we act restoratively within that system? Correct. And that, in behind that is a huge um, debate in Christian circles between um, the justice view of God, where mm. retribution is the ultimate end of all things, mm. um, versus the restorative view, educational view of God, that God is actually um, shaping all the cosmos. Um, so so in, in the restorative view of God, which is much more the patristic view, judgment is a means to an end. Mm -hmm. The final game is all being restored. But if you actually believe the final game in the whole cosmos is uh, an everlasting uh, prison, then it does tend to authenticate the um, mm. uh, law and order uh, interventionist approach. Yeah. Uh, the, so with that um, very, very interesting background, your book, um, I thought, by the way, um, and I'd highly recommend it because um, it was really nourishing. Mm. I want to say, it, look, I, I never read a whole book, but I've read a third of your book, which put you right <laughs> on top of the list. <laughs> It's fantastic. And, and it was, it, it, you know, when, I'll tell you, when I began to read it, um, I thought the trouble with mercy is that it does lend itself so easily to a cliche or mm. superficial handling. Um, uh, uh, but almost from the word go, you, 
you fulfilled the title of how, how mercy is disruptive. Now, um, your view of mercy in the book, I saw what you were doing is saying we have to take this word, I mean, putting it simply, I'll just put it simply and then get you to elaborate. What I read and heard was that there's a sort of a traditional view of mercy that sounds good but it's problematic because it's essentially hierarchical. Mm. I'm a powerful person showing mercy to a weaker person and I'm really nice to do it to you. Um, and th there's a lot of implications uh, in behind that model of mercy um, that are problematic mm. and, and probably, whereas what you were saying is, no, no, if, if we're gonna play in this more systemic world, there's an alternative view, which I, I would describe as more of an ecology of mercy that the entire cosmos is built upon a synchronicity and mutuality uh, now, there's a lot behind that. You go into a lot of detail. And what I like about it is you probably spend, say, it's very deep philosophy, but very you express it very easily. I won't try and capture it here, but that might be 30%. But 70% is the scriptures. Hmm. And um, so hmm. that, that, sets the, that sets the groundwork now for you to explain more to us about this right. new paradigm of mercy that would underpin the kind of systemic interventions mm. that you think are going to make a difference in this particular system yeah right well i don't think of it as a new paradigm but but recovering an old one, recovering an old one yeah uh, so the book's called disrupting mercy and it's not primarily about human trafficking as you know so um i want to in the title have this ambiguity that part of what i want to do is disrupt the commonly accepted views of mercy and then replace it with a view of mercy that i think is disruptive uh, so the disrupting plays those two uh, two roles in the title. I think mercy is uh, scandalous. Mercy is outrageous and, and highly disruptive. But through that disruption, it gives opportunity for transformation and reconciliation. Uh, so the book is written by both myself and my wife, Annabella. I wrote the actual words, but it all comes out of intense conversations and, and life ministry uh, together. So uh, the, the views are, are very much formed out of our partnership together. I just happen to be the one who um, writes words. Um, what else do I want to say? Uh, so I think the traditional um, views on mercy are captured in two common archetypal images in our Western world. One is uh, the image in a courtroom where someone is, has been accused, the evidence is heard, they're found guilty, and as a last resort, they beg for the mercy of the court. Now, it's not an issue there of whether they're guilty or not. There's no reason to, to, to ask for mercy if you're innocent. You let go anyway. It's when you're found guilty that you ask for, for mercy. And what you're asking for is for the judge to withhold the punishment which the law would require. So that, that's one common image. Um, we see that, for instance, in who was the Australian guy who was part of the Bali Nine um, who took uh, drugs into Bali, was caught in jail, and he was convicted along with, with uh, the other eight and sentenced to death. And, and he had, and his legal team, made various appeals for, for mercy to the President Widodo uh, and the Australian Prime Minister at the time, I can't remember who that was, um, made an official appeal. And there was a huge petition in Australia with 100,000 signatures, I think, which was sent as, as a plea to withhold the death penalty as an act of mercy. 
and in the end it didn't happen. Uh, the, second, the second image that I think is fairly common is on the battlefield. Big sword fight, um, someone loses, they're lying on the ground and the victor has got the sword at the person's throat and they beg for mercy. Um, Russell Crowe in The Gladiator, he's having this fight and he's beaten someone and everyone's demanding that he kills this person and he doesn't. And there's silence and then all the crowd starts going, Maximus the Merciful, Maximus the Merciful. Uh, and that doesn't go very well for him with the, with the other authorities. Um, now, I think those two, as you say, both show this power differential. It's always um, a more powerful who has the right to impose some uh, punishment, judgment on a weaker individual, but possibly magnanimously they might decide not to do what the person deserved. They've been bested, they've been found guilty, but maybe mercy might not impose what they deserve. And in the book I question that whole word deserve, um, and I won't go into, into the long story about why I don't like the word deserve. Um, but the, those two images show an idea of mercy in opposition to fairness. The fair thing, the right thing, the just thing is put aside uh, if we act mercifully. And so I want to challenge that, that dichotomy and say that both justice and mercy are cooperators in a larger goal. Uh, and I think that larger goal is the establishment and the maintenance and the restoration of shalom. That what Jesus calls us to, and it's clear in the Old Testament as well, is that um, God wishes for a world in which all can flourish. And he calls his supporters to join in the co-creation of a world where that can happen. And uh, one way of creating a world for all to flourish is to have some laws and to have some consequences when people break those laws, including uh, incarceration and possible punishment to teach people a lesson. So it's, there's a redemptive possibility there. But also um, the giving people a second chance, understanding people's backstory and realising why they did something um, and giving them some education, giving them another alternative so that they don't feel that it's their only choice to go back and do it again. So mercy and justice both serve, or maybe the better way of saying it is that justice isn't what we think. Justice isn't about retribution. Justice is about the establishment and maintenance of shalom. And laws and punishment and mercy are cooperating actors in bringing that about. Yeah, so justice might be sort of setting boundaries and consequences within a system. Mm -hmm. um, uh, whereas what's traditionally seen as mercy is, uh, I think in, in your book you made a lot of the fact that mercy is a subset of love. Mm. And um, I really liked the way you talked about coherence and mutuality. Um, mm. And... Um, and that mercy can be a two-way flow. It's not as if it's powerful to the less powerful. No, it's, it's, a, it's a recognition that we are in this together yeah. and, and that without kindness and care and going be above and beyond what might be morally or legally required of us, we do things for, for each other's well-being. One of the images that Bella and I quite like is the idea of a tapestry. It's all woven together nicely, but you can guarantee that over time the, some strands are going to break. And our society's like that, where the society's woven together of relationships and goodwill, 
But, but regardless of how much kindness and goodwill there is, some things are going to go wrong. We're going to hurt each other. I'm going to screw up. I'm going to break my leg. You know, um, there's going to be disease and famines and deliberate and non-deliberate um, sin against each other, uh, harm to each other. And so mercy works behind the scenes to tie the, the broken threads back together again. And so you see the beauty of mercy, not by looking at the front face of the tapestry, but by looking at the back where all the hard work has been done, tying together the brokenness. And that I think is what I feel called uh, to do as a follower of Jesus, to be involved with tying the threads so that, so that the fabric of society can remain intact for the benefit of, of everybody. Uh, now, I loved the way you handled some very well-known stories. Um, hmm. And I'll just pick the first one you begin with, Zacchaeus. Right. Yep. And, and you really took the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus and, and broke that open in fresh ways as to, why, as to the way Jesus turned the tables on traditional judicial models there and hierarchical models. Do you want to just say a little bit about that hmm. story? Yeah, this is one of Bella's uh, better ideas. Well, she has lots of good ideas. This is one of the best. Uh, we were going to call the book the Zacchaeus strategy for a while, but we moved away from that. Um, so, yeah, look, Zacchaeus is an outcast. He's marginalised. Uh, his community doesn't want anything to do he's with him. He's a perpetrator. He's a perpetrator, yeah. He's been taking advantage of the people around him, exploiting people financially uh, for his own benefit. Uh, and Jesus comes into uh, Jericho. There's a crowd. Uh, Zacchaeus, uh, we're told, is, is uh, short, and so he climbs a tree. Jesus coming into the town of Jericho, from my understanding of the culture of the time, uh, ought to have been invited to someone's house. Someone in the community would have seen the stranger and, and given hospitality to him, but, but nobody did. So Jesus comes into the crowd. He's actually on his way out. Uh, he, he's not going to stay there. Um, and, uh, but the crowd's there and he sees Zacchaeus and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to have dinner at your place. Now, uh, we don't know what happens. We don't know what Jesus said beyond that. Uh, we don't know if there was a long conversation, if he stayed overnight. Um, we don't even know if he had the meal. Um, implied, he probably did. He probably went to Zacchaeus' house and had a meal. But Zacchaeus virtually immediately um, has this um, enlightenment uh, and his trajectory of life is radically changed. So he seems to realise that um, he's done something wrong and that he needs to make recompense. Um, what is, why is that? Just the fact that Jesus said, I'm going to have dinner with you. What did he, he said he'd repay people here. Uh, uh, what, what did he actually say? Yeah, he'd give back anything uh, uh, that was uh, incorrect. And, and if, any, if it was anything that was done illegally, he'd give back fourfold. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Now, it seems to me that it's the very act of Jesus recognising him, which is transformative, because he's the outcast. And Jesus makes himself the outcast from that, that group. Uh, by siding with with a perpetrator, um, uh, and in doing that, he Jesus ends up saying, uh, "What is it T today? Uh, the, the the son of this son of Israel has been restored. Salvation, Salvation has come to this son of Israel." Um, now he was always a son of Israel by heritage, but not by cultural identity and belonging. He was outcast from that, uh, but 
there was this moment of change. And so as I present mercy in the book, I want to say that mercy acts on three different levels. On one level, mercy deals with a particular need, and that need could be as broad as you can think of. It might be the need for forgiveness, but it might be the need for uh, healing a broken leg. It might be a need of a social outcast who needs a sense of belonging. It might be all sorts of things. Um, what am I saying? Right, that's the first level. The second level is that mercy provides such a disruption that it stops someone in their tracks and makes them rethink. And so it provides an opportunity for personal transformation. And the third thing that mercy does in the bigger cosmic picture of things, which we might talk about a bit more later, is um, that mercy, I think, is God's primary tool for bringing about the reconciliation of all things. That the, the, the big idea is that mercy gives people the opportunity to flourish in the whole, the whole cosmic really scheme of things. That's a important point. I think you're saying that mercy, as more broadly defined, is a transformative engine. Mm. Um, it yeah. isn't just about fixing things up. It's, it, it has the power to transform. I, I was reading your book and uh, uh, Jonathan's daughter, Trixie, who's eight, am I right? Yeah. Saw the title and said, "Disrupting mercy." She said, "What's that about, Grandpa?" So I said, oh, <laughs> uh, "Why don't Why don't you uh, Why don't you have a go?" So we had a bit of a conversation. So this is her summary of the book, uh, which she explained to, to you. And she said, "Well, here's the world. There's evil things happening, one after another, one after another, one after another, and there's a pattern of evil." That's the word. <laughs> good design and thinking. In comes mercy, and mercy disrupts it and changes the pattern of evil for good. Mm. Yep, that's it. Well, that's I didn't need to write the book. Yeah. <laughs> but no, this right. is an important point. Mm. Uh, in other words, this, this idea of transformation, that mm. it's transforming situations, yeah. which is what... Now, the other thing that in that Zacchaeus story, as it finished, salva today salvation's come mm. to this house. Um, that's shalom. Yeah. That's, that's the restorative. Mm. Yeah, and, that's and, right. Uh, there was another point you made out of that story, which I thought you made elsewhere as well, um, that often mercy, that rather than this hierarchical, um, I'm better than you and, you know, the, the Russell Crowe um, vision mm. of mercy, mercy often runs on empathy. I'm going to align mm. myself with you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have to get inside your shoes, which will mean I have to lower myself and there's a, you've made that point with the Zacchaeus story that Jesus by aligning with with a despised um, person um, took that shame on himself mm. um, yeah yeah that's right and when we get back to talking about human trafficking we you've pointed out that Zacchaeus is a perpetrator um, but by rescuing the perpetrator Jesus also rescues all these future victims Oh, yeah, correct. Yeah. He's going to repay everyone and become yeah. a philanthropist in the community. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, I see the, the process of mercy as always starting with need and seeing, seeing a need. Um, and not just seeing the, the physical, the outward need, but seeing deeply into someone and understanding that um, uh, uh, with, with empathy what's going on for that person. You see their suffering. You, you see their, their deep inner angst about the fact that they've got a broken leg or that they're blind or, or whatever. And then after that comes a reaction of compassion. Uh, so I distinguish between compassion and mercy by 
and, and it's, well, this is the way I presented in the book anyway, as com thinking of compassion as the emotive response to something, uh, but as mercy, mercy as the resulting action. Right. So through identification with the person, we have this sense of compassion, and then out of that we can decide to, uh, to act for the person's, person's good. I think this idea of empathy, uh, as you know, design um, and design thinking has been the professional area I've played in for over a decade. One of the um, tricky, uh, very difficult to describe processes in design, it's called design research. Mm -hmm. Now, normally when you do design research, when you do research, you're normally outside the system, um, you know, the, the scientist asking questions. And that's seen to give you an understanding of what's going on. But mm. designers know, particularly if I'm designing a human experience, that doesn't cut. Right. That doesn't cut because I'm outside. I need to get inside. Mm. So design research is often empathy. And, and uh, the story I explain, extreme stories, is I, was, I had the privilege of being the Nuremberg Chair of Design at Carnegie Mellon in 1995. I was the second appointee. The third appointee was a woman, um, young lady, who was an interior designer and she had become famous um, in the design world and probably beyond because her job was designing um, rehabilitation centers and centers uh, for old people mm -hmm. right um, now rather than you know do traditional research she did what we'd say design research which is i'm 35 i'm healthy what do i know it feels like to be 80 i have no idea mm -hmm. so do, do you know what she did for three months, um, with a, she had friends in Hollywood. She dressed herself up every day as an 80-year-old woman, <laughs> uh, make up everything, right. and became 80 in her bones, and yeah. walked and went across America as an 80-year-old woman. Right. You know, getting bumped aside in queues, yeah. uh, and not being able to turn on open doors because of the arthritis. She had to internalize uh -huh. all of that inadequacy of need, and then she could begin to design mm, mm, from mm. the inside. Yeah, look, that's important because uh, talking here, um, two white guys throwing words around, it becomes very cognitive. Mm. But mercy uh, has a cognitive aspect, but, but it starts with compassion. It, it's, it's an inner drive for the other person's well-being, and it ends with action. If it, if it doesn't come out in action, then it's not, not mercy. Uh, there is cognitive stuff happens because having recognized the need, you then need to think through, well, am I willing to do something about it? There's, there's an act of will in there, volition, that goes beyond the visceral beginning. And you have to think, well, what's the best way to help? And so developing an ability to be merciful is more than just wanting to. You've got to train yourself. It, it, you'll make mistakes. You'll do something that you thought was going to help someone and it makes it worse. So there's a, there's a process of learning over time, trying things, failing, improving. It's the process of discipleship. It, it's the making a habit of wanting to respond to the compassion. Um, so it's got, the th got those three parts. There's a visceral part, there's the cognitive part, but there's also the, the action, the active part. Now, um, you've identified around the world, there are um, more and more people who are, who are essentially um, wanting to work in this same area that you've been advocating, which is let's work a bit on the perpetrators. If we don't change the perpetrators, if they don't experience shalom, the system will continue to go on and we'll just rescue and a victim, another one comes in. Plus victims become perpetrators. And yes. It, it, um, so on. So 
You mentioned to me a, a group in India mm -hmm. who are doing something along those lines. Um, could you just explain what they're doing? I think it makes it concrete how you could, if you had this different yeah. worldview. And I don't know if they're a Christian group or not. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. So there's a group called the My Choices Foundation, which I think is headed by a Christian, but it's not fundamentally a Christian organisation. And their primary program is to do preventative work in Indian villages by uh, running a program within the village that uh, informs people about the risks of someone coming into the village and making um, um, amazing offers to take their girls for a job somewhere uh, to make those people recognise that what's really going to happen here is they'll never see the daughter again and they'll be prostituted somewhere. And then to make uh, a resilient community that can protect each other from that type of exploitation. Uh, so that's, that's important preventative work, but it doesn't touch on the perpetrator very much. What we'd like to, what we tried to encourage them to, and they're, they're resistant to, and we'd, we've been working with other organisations that run similar prevention programs. Most of those programs are built around the idea that certain people are vulnerable to be exploited. And we want to say, well, equally, there are people in that same community who are vulnerable to becoming exploiters. And so the, can't, can't those programs also include components which help people at a young age to think about what type of person they want to be when they grow up and to make early commitments to be protectors and carers for the people around them rather than um, uh, abusers and exploiters. So that would be a, a stronger program in our view. But the, one of the women involved in that program, which is, I think, what I was mentioning it to you, on the side is doing a PhD. And uh, her PhD is interviewing uh, trafficking offenders to try to understand their background, uh, why they did what they did, what they thought they were achieving. Was it for money? Uh, was it for power, social status? Um, was it because of some sadistic pathology? Uh, what was their childhood like? Um, where they abused themselves. So, so she's gathering that kind of data. And it's one of the first in the world. There's another similar study that was done um, uh, by Austin Choi Fitzpatrick in India as well, uh, maybe 10 years ago. Uh, but, but it's very rare for anyone to actually talk to the trafficker to find their backstory and their, to understand their motivations. So how, how can we possibly change their behaviour if we don't understand why they're behaving that way? And, and if you understood their backstory better, then interventions uh, that are more systemic around that yeah. backstory would come. Now, you are um, talking at a conference in Jakarta, aren't you, later in the year? Uh, in Bali. Yeah, Bella and I both got invited. Uh, it's a Indonesia-wide network of anti-slavery organisations. I think most of them are involved in sex trafficking, but some labour exploitation as well. And uh, they've only met once or twice. They're not a particularly Christian group. No, not at all. Just a network of 100 or 200 different diverse organisations. Uh, and at their previous meeting, they said, you know, what we should talk about at our next meeting is how do we engage effectively with traffickers? Because a lot of us do it, but we don't know how to do it. And so um, one of the organisers heard me speak at a different conference and has invited us to contribute there. And our strongest aim there is to listen to what they're already doing. We'd like to draw out from them the stories of, of their experiences so that um, we can help give them language to, um, to talk better, talk um, 
more visibly about the work that we think they're already doing. So, uh, you guys are not uh, multi-millionaires. No. Um, you are not people who are part of a big organisation. As a matter of fact, there's just there's, the two, there's of two of us. Yeah. And uh, you've had to work out how, how can I make an impact on this system. Mm. And um, uh, what I've seen is you're doing it via uh, research articles and speaking at conferences where I think your role that, that would be emerging might be more something mentor language giving frameworks to other people who are on the ground doing mm. things. Yeah, that's an important part. The other part is that uh, uh, Bella for many years before I met her uh, runs a sustainable social enterprise which sells coffee to raise funds for a variety of social causes. Um, and the, her successful business enables me not to have to earn a, an income. Oh, that's a good idea. So we've, yeah, so we've had a few uh, friends who, who put some money into the, the kitty as well. Um, but uh, our, our model is to work locally. We, we, I don't really believe that we're going to see significant change in human trafficking by changing the UN and changing uh, laws and public policy and by strengthening law enforcement to impose uh, violence against the violence. Uh, I think change will happen from, as a, from a groundswell of people recognising that we have to be merciful to each other. And so we do that through a lot of conversations while we're selling coffee and in conversations like this. And this year we're spending um, our time travelling around, hoping to run uh, seminars at churches, rotary clubs, schools, uh, around a dinner table. And so we'd love anyone who's watching this to contact us uh, if you want to invite us to, to come and facilitate some discussion. We think that groundswell of change so that people are activated to care for each other locally and to show mercy to each other, desiring to co-create a society where everyone can flourish, that's going to be a more sustainable model of undercutting uh, the motivation for human trafficking rather than a top-down top uh, forceful Well, if anyone approach. does want to get in touch with you, they should just send us a message at Gospel Conversations and we'll mm. happily get them in touch. And, um, right. and the same with the book. What about the, the, the book, mm. if they wanted to buy it, which I'd highly recommend. I really think mm. it's a, a wonderful book. Uh, yep, so the book's available uh, through most online bookstores. Uh, Amazon has it. Uh, Kurong hasn't quite got it, but they will have it soon. Yeah. Disrupting mercy. Disrupting mercy. Uh, so, yep, most online bookstores will, will have it, and Kurong will have it soon. So, um, I, we'll bring it to a close now, but if we might just sort of loop right back to um, to the way that this broader view of mercy um, equips you to take a more systemic approach to the problem. But the broader mm. view of mercy. Um, is a view of, of mercy that really has you know, quite strong implications on onto what's the nature of salvation and, and God's mm. work in the world. Mm. Um, and uh, would you like to make a comment on that just to finish mm. up with? Yeah, sure. So one of the strong themes of the book is that mercy is a gift. Uh, it's a gift that doesn't have anything to do with whether someone deserves it or not. It's based on their need. And the gift comes without any preconditions. You don't 
earn it. There's nothing you have to do to receive a gift. And it hasn't got any post conditions either. You're not indebted to someone who gives you mercy. It's, not, it's non-transactional. Um, and so that, I think, comes from the nature of God, that God's mercy to us is of the same kind. It's, it's, a, it's a gift, non-transactional, not deserved or undeserved. That's, that's irrelevant. Um, and so I, as you go into the series on atonement, um, I think mercy is an important foundation stone to pose the question, if mercy is central to the character of God and to the mission of God in the world, and if mercy is a gift, then how would that kind of God engage for the salvation of the world? What would the acts of salvation look like if they were acts of that kind of type of mercy? Yes, and um, you, you've used the word there, transactional. Uh, that, that's another adjective you use to describe the traditional mercy models. Yes. Um, and you, you've said there, you point out their inadequacy um, and um, transactional relationships are very much law and order, cause and effect, tit for tat mm -hmm. systems. And, yeah. and, and my view has always been, I think with Mark Strom, you know, he and I have thought for years that it's wired into us by eating the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. That's our speculation. That's how we just, we can't help right. but view the world as this uh, transactional system. Um, and that God does not fit that world. Um, he's in, find some other word. Um, mm. Um, shalom, um, hmm. uh, uh, expansive love that knows no limit, something, and that therefore um, his blessings for good um, come out of his character hmm. um, and they are not contingent upon us. And this does tie in with a lot of the themes that we, uh, I mean, I've just in Breakfast with Jesus. Uh, been talking on Jeremiah and I've, I've been personally, I, I don't know if anyone is listening. But I've been blessed by, and Jeremiah 31 was the one that just stunned me, but it's, it's where God moves when he announces the new covenant. There are no preconditions. Mm. I mean, he's at, he, the whole time of Jeremiah he said, because you served idols and, and were not just, mm. judgment will come upon you. That's mm. the then world. Then comes a promise about returning to the land and flourishing. And there's no, if you do this, I'll no, return you to no. the land. It's just a declaration. Yeah. Um, it's quite an, it's a paradigm shift um, now. Mm. And can I just say that I, I mentioned here about Hosea. I think Hosea tells the same sort of story. That in the early parts, Hosea is about broken marriage covenants. And that is a symbol of our broken covenant with God. We didn't fulfill the conditions. But then God gets to the point, it's a turning point in God's, psyche where god says but how can i do that that awful punishment they're my children didn't i nurture them on my knee and and so that the mercy of a parent for their child uh overwhelms uh god and and stands quite counter to the 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 conditional conditional um legal structure yes and um mm. just by way of concluding i um Mentioned, I think I've mentioned before in some of the podcasts, but uh, some of us in gospel conversations uh, like Douglas Campbell a lot. I think you know he's the, definitely have, has a growing reputation as as the you know the new Paul scholar in the world. 
New Zealand or Duke University. And it's in incredibly instructive, having listened to this, to look at the debate on YouTube between him and Douglas Moo, hmm. who's traditional uh, over justification. Um, and I think it's no contest. I mean, it's, it's very it's, it's very good because it's not a debate. It's a, it's very ordered. There's mutual respect. Um, uh, I, I think Douglas Campbell thinks on his feet a lot quicker than Douglas Moo, and Douglas <laughs> Moo actually says that. I sort of felt sorry for him. He's a bit outgunned. But the, the essential point when he was, put, you know, Douglas Moo was putting forward the models of justification, the Lutheran models of justification, it was, it's a whole, it's a courtroom concept. And that's what Campbell says to him. He says, you've just picked one metaphor mm -hmm. uh, of how God relates. Mm -hmm. um, there are others and they're more important. And he goes to father, which is what you do. Yeah. You know, the, the fatherhood of God and the love and the mother, mm -hmm. God as mother, that, that mm -hmm. you could have picked that. And that has utterly different paradigms. And as he said, he uses the phrase moving from a transactional um, model of salvation to his word is covenantal, but then the covenant's based upon the, the promise and character of God. Right. Yeah, I'd want to take it past covenant as well. I, I, yeah. I think covenants still have conditions uh, and there's something more radical. The, and with the new covenant, doesn't it? That's, that's ah, the point. right. That's the point. It's quite astonishing. People just yeah. don't read it. Right. Anyway. <laughs> um, uh, uh, I mean, when I say don't read it, I mean just read Jeremiah 31 mm. really carefully. Just textually read it really carefully. I mean, I've, I've given... I've lived in it, um, and from a literary analysis point of view, it's stark. Mm. Um, the one I've just done is, by the way, um, as you know, I had my one of my talks was on H E W L, worst translation in the Bible, and um, uh, Jesus used the phrase Gehenna, which of course is the Aramaic for the Valley of Hinnom. And now, if you put the Valley of Hinnom, um, it's not scary enough. It's not scary enough, so I got rid of it. Uh, but if you said to most Christians, well, well what, what metaphorical basis, you know, what's mm. Jesus' source for Valley of Hinnom? They wouldn't know what you're talking about. So, mm. well, then, get, you know, do some research. It's all in Jeremiah. Mm. It's all in Jeremiah. And there are three big mentions of the valley. So Jeremiah is using the Valley of Hinnom uh -huh. as an as a image. Um, and, and when you start reading it, it comes alive. And now there are two which are explicit about the Valley of Hinnom, and the one, the, and one that's implicit, which is my, what my next talk is on, and that's where the Valley of Hinnom will be replaced and become sacred to the Lord. Ah, so, wow. That's my next talk on Breakfast with Jesus. Look out for it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, no, I think it's a great place to stop, Matt. Yeah. We've, uh, yeah. we've uh, talked for about an hour, um, and uh, so thank you very much mm, for that's coming. Been and, great. And uh, yeah, well done. <laughs> Thanks.